Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Fatima, and I'd like to welcome uh, our guest for today's episode, Dr. Craig Malkin, who is an author of the book, Rethinking Narcissism, and is a lecturer at Harvard and a clinical psychologist with two decades of experience in working with couples and families. Today, we'll be discussing narcissism, specifically a different way of thinking about narcissism. Let's get into today's conversation. Hello, Dr. Malkin, and thank you for joining us today here at the Trauma and Mental Health Report. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. So, you know, you've done a lot of work on uh, narcissism, and we kind of, before we dive into the conversation about narcissism, Could you please um, clarify to our audience the difference between, you know, narcissistic personality disorder and narcissism? Sure. Narcissism is a trait uh, that exists to some extent in all of us. It's a pervasive human universal trait. And you want to think of it as the drive to feel special, exceptional or unique, to quote University of Washington psychologist Jonathan Brown. Uh, And... You want to think of narcissists as people who are high on the trait. There's lots of ways to measure narcissism. We have a lot of self-report measures like the narcissist personality disorder. I have my measure, the narcissism spectrum scale. And people who score well above average on that or are observed to be higher in trait narcissism than the average person, uh, we call them narcissists. Mm-hmm. Narcissists may or may not be disordered. That is, we have narcissism and disorders of narcissism. The one diagnosis that we have for disordered narcissism is is pathological narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder. You want to think of these people as high enough in the trait uh, that they express what I call the core of pathological narcissism, triple E. That is exploitation, uh, doing whatever it takes to feel special, including lie, steal, cheat, hurt people at times, exploiting them. Uh, entitlement, which is acting as if the world should bend to our will, we're that special, and empathy impairments, where our need to feel special, exceptional, unique is so strong that it blinds us to the needs and feelings of others. So that's a good overview of what these different aspects of narcissism are. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. So would you say that, um, you know, narcissistic narcissistic personality disorder kind of occurs less and the prevalence is less for that compared to narcissism? Oh, absolutely. We have, if people poke around on the internet, they will find a statistic that roughly 1% of people around the world have narcissistic personality disorder. Now that translates into a lot when you think about 7 billion people, obviously. But, you know, in our everyday life, it's going to be a lot lower. Narcissist uh, is going to be, by definition, a higher rate because these are people who are high enough in the trait to to be called narcissists. But because unhealthy uh, and pathological narcissism and healthy narcissism don't rise and fall in perfect step with one another, you can run into things like most presidents and politicians. Right. score high enough 
on narcissism to be called narcissists. We hope they are not disordered. <laughs> right. Um, so, and that rate is going to be, uh, again, by definition, if we're talking about one standard deviation above the norm, that that is going to be 16% of the population. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot higher. And again, of that population, not a lot of them are going to have narcissistic personality disorder. Right. And you know, like the term just narcissism, it's been such a hot topic so far. And I see it on social media and, you know, even like TV shows and just media in general, um, it's being thrown around kind of lightly, like for, you know, whatever occurrence happens, like, oh, she's such a narcissist. He's such a narcissist. So can you kind of clarify, like, when do we really like know that person is a narcissist in our everyday life? How can we pin that, you know, as, you know, flick to our lay audience, how do we know that person for real is a narcissist? There are tells. I think Mm -hmm. that's what we should talk about. The problem is we should also talk about the fact that most people have a caricature of what narcissism and narcissists are. Mm -hmm. As when most of us think about narcissists, this is what I talk about. This is one of the rethinks and rethinking narcissism. Most of us think of that word, we think of vain, preening, primping, boastful braggarts. And the problem is not all narcissists care about looks or fame or money, and some can be extremely quiet. It comes in different forms, and maybe we can get into those forms. Uh, Anybody who we'd be concerned about, we want to be seeing somebody more towards the range of disorder. So one way to sort of spot that or recognize it is when you see triple E. If somebody falls short of that and it's just a problem in interacting with them and they're sort of aloof and arrogant and superior um, or less or there might be more subtle forms. One thing that shows up very early on uh, is that because all narcissists are insecurely attached, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning when they're sad, scared, lonely, blue, uh, they don't trust that they can turn to one special person or, or people. Uh, for mutual care and comfort and connection. They can't talk to them when they're sad, not openly. Anyway, narcissism is an attempt to cope with that. And there are predictable ways of doing that. There's a finite number of ways of avoiding expressing vulnerable feelings, staying connected to human emotion. And this is what leads to these tells. So a lot of these show up early on across the different types of narcissism. One of them is what I call playing emotional hot potato. Mm-hmm. So all of us do this at times. It's just the more narcissistic someone is, the more they frequently they, they do it. And specifically, they do it in order to sustain a sense of feeling special. Classic example is I had a client who was applying to graduate school. Her boyfriend was there. He's deeply insecure. And rather than say, I feel insecure, I'm not showing sure what I'm going to do in life, he would just stand over her shoulder and say, oh, you're never going to get in there. You're probably shooting too high. I don't know about that one. So in other words, he was propping himself up to feel like he was in the know and he gets all of this and undermining her sense of comps. He was uh, saying and doing things to make her feel insecure so she wouldn't have to. And this can fall well well short of uh, abusive behavior, this way of dodging vulnerable feelings in themselves. But when you see that, you're starting to see troubling signs of narcissism. Right. So they kind of feel threatened when they see others are doing well, right? Absolutely. That's one of the triggers. So uh, you're right to point that out. Obviously, he was triggered by envy. Right. 
Mm. And that that really ramped up his insecure. And then he had to try to get rid of it in some way by feeling, oh, I I get all this and I understand how this world works and you don't. At least that's sort of the attitude. Right. And, you know, like that kind of brings me to my next question, you know, that insecurity you talked to a little bit about attachment. Like how are narcissists made? Are they born or is it like an environmental thing, like the way that they grew up, maybe their um, relationship with their parents? So how are they made? It is controversial at times in ways that I don't think it should be. I will say to a person. Everyone I've seen in my practice, a lot who has narcissistic personality disorder, has had a a, a miserable childhood experience in one way or another. They might start out Mm -hmm. sort of acting as they were not, or that's the story. Not all of them do, but Mm -hmm. many do. And then it becomes clear, like, well, you know, for for example, we didn't have hot water and we, we, at times we weren't able to cook food and make it hot. Uh, and my mother would tell me, uh, the water's, the water's warm, the water's fine, right? Outright mm-hmm. gaslight, Think, things like that. They often come out. Um, it's best to think of how pathological narcissism develops as a combination of a particular kind of sensitive or difficult temperament plus environment because we already know that you can measure a psychologist named Phoebe Kramer did this she measured longitudinally Mm -hmm. uh, signs starting signs of in preschoolers of uh, pathological narcissism like bullying and always need to be the center of attention and then she also measured in parenting styles and the parenting style that was more structured and warm, those kids did not grow up to be pathologically narcissistic. They often grew up to be just fine and, and healthy. Uh, the kids who had that temperament plus insecure attachment experiences where they didn't feel like they could trust their parents or other people in the family to turn to for comfort, care, reliably to share their feelings, uh, they turned out pathologically narcissistic. They showed lots of signs of unhealthy narcissism. So we actually have a study of over 20 years that shows just because start, people start out that way, as long as they have that protective experience, they're not going to turn out to have narcissistic personality disorder. Right. Just shows you how important, you know, that parent-child relationship is and all yeah. the factors that it can contribute to. And that also kind of brings me into my question is, you know, um, like from what you're saying, it's like, you know, parents who are, I wouldn't say like, who kind of show more loving relationship and so on and so forth. These kids the study turned out to be didn't really turn out to be on like didn't turn out to be narcissistic now my question is um it could be it could go the the other way right where you know the parent is dealing with their own trauma because they were maybe you know they had a narcissistic uh parent and then that that may you know pass on to their child my question is what if one parent is is you're you're co-parenting with a narcissist How how does that work how do you um, maintain a healthy, you know, family relationship, um, 
And you know, in one of your videos, you talk about this co-parenting with a narcissist, and I found that to be you know really interesting. So, could you tell us a bit about you know how parents can maintain a healthy relationship with their family if they are parenting uh, with someone who's a narcissist, whether they're together or whether they're not? It comes back again to attachment security. Mm-hmm. So, I want to say a little bit more about it. Um, most people who are in that position, most parents who are in that position, uh, very often they're already divorced, they're already separated, they're already doing things differently, separately with the kids, and, and they might have ended that relationship precisely because it felt so unhealthy, and they couldn't have the kinds of conversations that you need to have in order to co-parent because we're always co-parenting as parents Mm -hmm. when things go well. If the co-parenting went well with somebody who's extremely narcissistic, you wouldn't need to end the relationship. So for people in that situation, I always recommend uh, keeping in mind, it's not really co-parenting, it's parallel parenting. And it's not required that it be co-parenting. We don't always need to check in in a healthy relationship about I did this, I wanna do this, Mm -hmm. when when we're trying to help our child. And the reason that's such good news is we also know from studies that it really only takes one experience of attachment security, just with one person, one parent to give to, to confer the the protective effects uh, that prevent somebody say from growing up to have narcissistic personality disorder, other character disorders, other problems. That is when, if that child feels in their relationship with you as a parent, say you're that one parent, that they can talk to you uh, when they're sad or scared, whether, or or lonely, whether it's about feelings with you or feelings with your ex, or yeah, in the case of somebody who hasn't left yet, feelings about their father or their mother. Uh, If you become that person, then they have the experience they need. They just need to be able to share those feelings. And as long as they have that, what, what we know is they will, they will develop just fine as long as they have that. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind when you're parallel parenting, uh, and by that I mean you're focusing on your experience and your relationship with your child. That's what you're working on. Right. Uh, is that very often when somebody is extremely narcissistic, they might tell lies about you, yeah. so-called mm-hmm. smear campaigns. They they might uh, they might make stories up to to make to portray you in a bad light to your child. Do not let lies stand. I always tell people this. That doesn't mean that you need to throw your ex, no matter how bad they are, under the bus because that puts your child in a loyalty bind. Um, but you can't let lies stand. So simple example, you know, uh, this actually came up uh, where somebody's son came to to a woman that I see and said, mommy, daddy says that you didn't want to come to my soccer game, that you didn't care. Mm -hmm. You don't let that lie stand. You just correct it. Oh, sweetheart, that is not how I feel at all. I really wish I could have gone. I had to go to a funeral. I'll, I'll definitely be there for the next one. I don't know why your dad said that. You'll have to talk to him about it. But all I can tell you is I always want to be there. And I wish I could have been this time. And I'm the one who makes that decision. So I would know best. Right. And then and then if your child has feeling, you know, and if the child has feelings about 
the fact that they're getting two different stories, you talk about that. Right. You don't say your dad's lying to you because he's a narcissist. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But what you can say is, I don't really know. I can't. That's something you have to. All I can do is tell you that I know the real reason that I did it. Yeah. So and, just kind of focusing on your relationship with your child, which you call yeah, yeah, yeah. Parallel, parallel parenting. Parallel, parallel parenting. And also just asking them how they felt about it. I don't know, you know, how does it feel so hard that you're getting two different stories? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. That's enough. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good, yeah, that's a good thing. Um, and also, last but not least, we want to talk about your book. Um, so Rethinking Narcissism. So could you tell our audience kind of in a nutshell, how do we like the takeaway from your book and how do you rethink narcissism and one of the questions i have is you talk about um ecoists so can you kind of explain that a little bit more um for someone who Great. hasn't heard it before and honestly it was my first time hearing it too so um it's an excellent question because that, that is very connected to the rethink there are two reasons to rethink narcissism and two many reasons that unfold from that but two main reasons that i wrote the book one is as i mentioned um we can get too caught up in a caricature of what narcissism is uh, again not all narcissists care about looks or fame or money and some can be shy even and socially anxious and if we get too caught up on that we as clinicians miss how to help somebody who has a narcissistic personality disorder and we miss helping people who are having difficult interactions with them signs of trouble so if you think of narcissism as a drive to feel special, exceptional, unique, there's lots of ways to do that. One is uh, people who agree with statements like everyone laughs at my jokes, right? This is the narcissist, as I say, we all know and loathe. Yeah. Uh, this is the loud extroverted or grandiose or quote unquote over lots, lots of names. Uh, and it presents that way. But then there's people who are extremely narcissistic, who are introverted. Uh, you can measure and see they're introverted. And they grew with statements like, I'm the most, I, I'm more tempers, temperamentally sensitive than most people. And other people don't understand my problem. So these are people who feel special, not in positive ways, but by virtue of their pain. Their pain is somehow elevated and being misunderstood above other people's experience. That's what's special. Uh, and then there are people called communal narcissists who agree with statements like, I'm the most helpful person I know. Mm -hmm. But just think about that. As a clinician, even I would never say that. I mean, who, right? So yeah. this is that's actually one of my favorite items. Mm -hmm. um, that's communal narcissism. Obviously, this is not somebody who cares about fame necessarily. So if we want to navigate these relationships and recognize these problems, we need to be aware of what the core is that is derived to feel special and how it manifests. Um, so that's one reason. And the second reason is that, um, as I mentioned, you, if, if you think of the fact that there's such a thing as healthy narcissism, and we know that there is, we can measure it in lots of ways. There's leadership authority on one measure, the narcissistic personality inventory. There's admiration on the narcissistic admiration and, uh, uh, and rivalry questionnaire, so-called NARC. There's our you know, narcissism spectrum scale, just called healthy narcissism. Uh, so what it all captures is what's also called self-enhancement. Mm -hmm. 
it's not self-esteem. It's not self-confidence. You want to think of it as a sl slightly overly positive view of self and sometimes other and sometimes future. Not so blind to our faults that we can't you know, see the world clearly, but you know, just an overly realistic, overly a positive, un unrealistic view of self. That's self-enhancement. When people have that, uh, they persist in the face of failure. They're able to give and take in relationships. They're often uh, and there's a couple of studies that suggest they might even live longer due to health benefits of this. We suffer if we do not self-enhance at all. Right. Uh, a failure to self-enhance that my colleagues and I measured is one way I understand echoism. Uh, this is the second big rethink. You want to think of echoism as a lack of healthy narcissism, uh, a fear of seeming narcissistic in any way. Uh, people who live life by the stance, the less room I take up, the better. Mm. And the the word, it's, the name itself comes from the myth of Narcissus and Echo. Echo was the nymph who was cursed to repeat back the last few words that she heard. And she fell in love with the vain Greek youth Narcissus. And like Echo, Echoists, because they're, they're, they live life by this rule, the less room I take of the better. They agree with statements like, I'm not sure what I want or need from relationships. Or when people ask me my preferences, I'm often at a loss. Mm -hmm. Because they struggle to sustain that healthy self-enhancement, they often fall into relationships like Echo did with extremely narcissistic friends and partners. Mm -hmm. So it's a problem in and of itself. They also will score higher often on measures of anxiety and depression. We need to feel special a little bit. It just happens, has to be in the right way. So that's another reason for a main rethink. Mm -hmm. So can narcissists change? And if so, how? Um, you know, you, you mentioned that there is like two opposite ends of the spectrum. There's the extrovert, there's the introvert. So my question is, can the introverts and extroverts change? Who is more likely to change? Who's more likely to seek help and how? Interestingly, there's a research answer to that. Um, people who present with more so-called covert or vulnerable or introverted um, narcissism that's that second type. Maybe I forgot to mention that, but that's what that type is called. It's also often frequently called hypersensitive. All different names for the same thing. They tend to present to therapy for more often and seek out help and therefore be able to engage help, according to research, because they're more willing to acknowledge when they don't feel good. Right. The more overt or grandiose narcissists uh, are unfortunately a little more blocked. And they're less likely to, to present for help. Mm -hmm. uh, when, whenever somebody who's extremely narcissistic presents for help, I always help them in, mainly in the same way. But you're, you're as a clinician, we're less, less likely to see somebody who's sort of a loud, extroverted, vain type. Um, so yes, they, all people with narcissistic personality disorder have a chance to be helped if they're willing to do the work. I, I've often been criticized for suggesting that there's any hope, even though these are people that I see in my practice and help and often mm -hmm. have, you know, stories like they end up getting remarried to an ex. Um, mm -hmm. I've had, oh, absolutely. Or, or at least getting back together and the relationship is much better if they do the work. I want to caution people against 
feeling like they necessarily have to stick around for that partner to do the work or that there's anything they can do. It's really a clinician's job. And if the person is truly capable of change, they'll understand if you need to separate for a time while they do the work and, the, and they'll do the work. And the way I help them is I help create an experience of attachment security in our work. That is to the extent that someone can depend on people truly, right? That attachment security piece, they will not depend on or be addicted to feeling special. It's, a, it's a, an end run. It's a way of bypassing the real experience of being able to turn to people in close connected ways. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I always work with somebody who's extremely narcissistic to help get underneath those defenses Uh, For example, uh, a common problem is people who are extremely narcissistic have a lot of received judgment, and I want to help them get on the other side of that. So I might say something like, when did you first viscerally experience that sense that you were somehow falling short in your parents' eyes or other adults' eyes, or like you didn't matter? And it's like, do you recall like when that feeling first came up, because I think it'll really help us to make these changes with you if, if we can call that up. And then I'll work with that as a memory. Oh, okay. So you were in the living room and you were crying and your mother was telling you to grow up, be a big boy. Oh my gosh, that's so awful. I want to make it vivid. And then and really uh, bring that scene alive, uh, called a portrayal in the, in, in theory and research. Mm -hmm. And then I'll ask them, how do you feel towards that little kid? Mm -hmm. And even have them play out what they would do to help them with the fact that they've been made to feel ashamed because they had a feeling, for example, or judged. Now they're on the other side of it and they're creating attachment security. And if they can provide a different response, they can also take in a different response. That's one way of working with memories to change this. And if they can comfortably go into those feelings, they won't rely on narcissism. It's really interesting, um, you know, the work on attachment that you do. Um, Trying to going back to when that, you know, client was a child and how they would do that differently. It's really interesting. Um, And yeah, I guess that kind of brings to my last question. For those who have been victims of narcissism, how can they cope and heal? And where do they start? right? Like, because right now, some of our listeners may be listening, and they're like, okay, yes, I've been there, that has happened to me. And I know that, you know, I was in a narcissistic relationship with a narcissistic partner, how can they start to heal? One, one important point to make uh, is that you always want to be aware, and I go over this and rethinking narcissism, you want to be aware of the three stop signs in a relationship, um, which are abuse, Right, mm-hmm. emotional, physical abuse, hitting, slapping, name calling, um, psychopathy, which is a remorseless, uh, cold, calculating approach to relationships. Um, and oh, for for goodness' sake, I'm forgetting the third one, but it'll probably come to me. Mm-hmm. But but these oh denial. Yeah. So if a person can't even acknowledge some small way that there's something wrong that they need to look at and work on. You know, if somebody's struggling with a drug addiction, they're not going to change. 
-hmm. if they're not if they're not willing to acknowledge i think there's something going on and i need help with it so abuse psychopathy and denial are reasons to seek help leaving a relationship if you're having trouble doing that first point mm -hmm. second point um i always start in the same place with survivors in these kinds of relationships uh and that is i want them to get in touch with healthy anger mm -hmm. so uh, um adaptive anger helps us say no to when we're getting what we don't want we're getting treated in a way we don't want helps us set boundaries helps us assert ourselves and stand up and one of the prices of staying connected to somebody who's extremely narcissistic right even if you're not echoistic you start to constrict yourself you start to squeeze into a smaller and smaller space in order to try to have a relationship with this person it can be uh, it can be insidious uh, and you give up your anger and disappointment. Mm -hmm. So this, the second point is so important. I always come back to the same place with, with people is you want to make a distinction between experiencing and expressing a, a feeling that is uh, just because this person in front of you is too unhealthy, maybe even abusive or incapable of listening to your feelings when you're hurt or when you're upset or when you don't like something that they're doing doesn't mean that you can't get in touch with the benefits of being in contact with yourself and that's what adaptive anger is so i have to do an exercise with people okay i understand one of the reasons that you're seeing me is that you can't say these things to your your partner you know, um but factor them aside let's put them aside for a moment it's just they're, they're out here right now it's just you and me how do you feel towards them when they uh when when they act tell you that you don't know what you're doing how do you feel towards them when they undermine your decisions or lie to you and then claim they haven't lied to you how do you feel towards them emotionally the answer of course is angry mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and say okay how do you know it's anger this is just good emotion work and get in contact with it and when you get in contact with a primary healthy version of anger like that inevitably what happens as we're working with it and i'm helping them remove blocks is they start to feel relief and they start to feel clarity right. and then they might even come up with something to say or not but they get the benefit of of moving away from self-doubt mm -hmm. and, and confusion to oh no 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 this is this is wrong my anger is telling me this is wrong mm -hmm. so that's often the starting point step one uh, because if we make full contact with that sense that this is wrong and i know it's wrong then we make fuller contact with our needs and then we can start to do something different right yeah that's really interesting because you know i i've done a little bit of reading about narcissism and i see a lot of you know uh people who have been in abusive um relationship with narcissists um especially if it's emotional abuse right it can get really confusing and they afterwards like after they leave the relationship they're questioning like did i do the right thing right like uh it's such a tricky spot to be in because they start like you mentioned like they start doubting themselves they start questioning themselves like so it's really good to hear that yeah. i also educate that that's a form of reconnecting mm -hmm. right to the extent that you doubt yourself and what you did, there's no reason to leave. Right. Right. And even if 
you know, even if you're not quite sure how you went about it, can we just come back to the fact that you have good reason to be angry? Even if you never show this to that other person or act on it, can we just make sure that you're in contact with it inside? Mm -hmm. Because it's information that you don't want to lose. Right. Well, you know, I could ask you so many more questions and this can go on for so long, but this has been such an interesting conversation. And thank you so much for, you oh, know, being welcome. here, Dr. Malkin, with the Trauma and Mental Health Report. It was an honor to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yourq.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.